Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Jude. We're going to pick it up this morning in verse 22. Uh, but again, I'm in a barrel, Tad, and I'm, Tad's going Tad's to fix that. Tad's going to pull me out of the barrel. Oh, he just cut my mic. Okay, well, never criticize the AV from the stage. I'll just switch off the mic. <laughs> um, we got a review. We have to review. Um, but before we even do that, let's call on the Lord and let's ask God to, God to help us to see, to learn, to receive his word this morning. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And Lord, we confess again how desperately we need you. Lord, without you, we can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. And so, God, this morning, would you open up your word to us? Uh, I am just gift, uh, I'm just able and talented enough to confuse everyone. Uh, but God, you can take your word, and you can take your Holy Spirit, and you can take the weakness of my flesh and just set that aside, and through your word and through your spirit, you can... Lord, you can enlighten our understanding. You can give us insight and wisdom. You can give us the ability and show us how to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we need you. You're God, we're not. We're your people. Have your way with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we saw in verses 14 and 15 that, that as much as anything, Jesus' return is to deal with these false teachers, these apostates, and so in verse 20, we begin to see our reaction. Uh, we saw we needed to equip the members, right? We need to contend for the faith, verse three. People need to be equipped so that false teachers can't trip them up. We, we gotta be praying in verse 20. We gotta keep our focus in the love of God, verse 21. And then we gotta remember the judgment seat of Christ is coming at the end of verse 21. But here this morning, this will be point number five in this section. Uh, we need to help the struggling, and we need to, and we need to be all about the business of seeing the, the lost saved, seeing souls saved, and that's going to take compassion. So let's look at this, verse 22. And if some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Uh, the word of God calls believers to have compassion. A lot of people will look at verse 22 and say, why doesn't it say have compassion for all? It just says for some, and if some, have compassion. Well, remember the tone, the overall message of this letter, okay? Um, remember the dual application, the tribulation application of this letter. I mean, you cannot miss it. The apostate's doom is sealed in verses 14 and 15. Let's pick it up in verse 12. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you. These false teachers, these apostates, are feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees who fruit, whose fruit withereth. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And here it is, an Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000s of his saints. Why? To execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. 
Okay, when we recognize that the apostate's doom is sealed, that ought to make us tremble. I mean, it should, it should make us tremble. Um, he's a national figure. Um, a lot of people would view him as a national pastor. I don't make a habit of bringing up names in the pulpit, but in the case of these national voices, I will do it from time to time to warn you against them. Andy Stanley is a false teacher. And right now, he is in the process of putting together what's called the Unconditional Conference, where he has LGBTQ activists training God's people on how they need to view those issues. Uh, that, I mean, read your Bible. Leviticus, the Torah cannot be more clear. Romans chapter one cannot be more clear. And instead of calling people to recognize our desperate need, that our sin absolutely separates us from God, instead of calling people to the terms and the claims and the sufficiency of the gospel, well now we're making space, we're excusing rebellion against God. This is apostasy. Don't fall for it. These, the, these systems of corrupting God's truth to make sin palatable, to turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, into a platform for us just to satisfy the lusts of our flesh. These systems, these false teachers, these apostates, it will all come to, not, to nothing. Why? Because, you know, God, God's the author of Scripture. How do you like it when people misquote and misrepresent you? Don't you feel compelled to defend yourself? Don't you feel compelled to speak up for yourself. That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. That's not what I was communicating. Well, God's no different. We've got a lot of people out there misrepresenting him, and they think that they can do this with impunity. At some point, Jesus comes to set it all straight. Of some, have compassion. How? Making a difference. Okay, so what about all those poor people that the false teachers are confusing. I mean, they're out there just, I mean, they're just, their cloudy doctrine is just foaming, it's just doctrinal foam that they're churning up. And with that, people don't know what to believe, or other people, they end up deceived, and, and it's hard for them to know what's right and what's wrong. It's hard for them to see clearly. Again, why did Jude write this letter? He tells you. He said, I wanted to write about the common salvation. I wanted to write another letter, kind of like Paul did in Romans, but I couldn't do that. Why? Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And then he goes on to explain, you've got people out there corrupting the faith. Verse 4, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness, denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, some of God's people have to speak the truth or else everybody else is gonna believe a lie. Hello, somebody. That's super weak, that's your job. That's your job. And the same thing goes for your fellow believers. You've got brothers and sisters. There's babes in Christ in this church. The internet is compounding false teaching exponentially. And so, you know, People have access to good teaching, good preaching. They've got access to that, but they've got access to a whole lot more craziness. I mean, we live in a day and age where, where biblical insanity is systemized 
It's packaged, it is, I mean, it is delivered wholesale. And so you've got babes in Christ, brothers and sisters that they don't know what to believe and they can get taken in by deceivers and false teachers. Galatians 6 tells us that we need to have compassion and make a difference in their life. Galatians 6.1 says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. When Paul told Timothy how to deal with these situations, he's like, look bro, you need to, in humility, in meekness, you want to instruct those that are opposing themselves. What's happening is, through wrong belief, they end up ensnared, they end up entrapped by the enemy, by Satan, they need to be delivered. And the only way you're gonna do that is in meekness and patience. Keep telling them the truth. That's the answer to the lie. Shine the light of truth, the light of scripture upon it. And this can ultimately, this can be life-saving. From Genesis to Revelation and every dispensation, you will see that God the Father reserves the right to take his kids home. Uh, the illustration I like to use uh, some of you have heard this before, is you know, I'm raising a family and, and we have a neighborhood pool and, and so I take my kids to the neighborhood pool and on the sign of the pool, it says you know, basically no running, no fighting, no yelling, no screaming, no peeing in the pool, no urinating on others, no fun. I mean, it's just right there on the, on the sign. And you know, I've got a couple of boys, you know, Sophie behaved like an angel, but you know, my boys, okay, that's another, that's another story. And so, you know, they're breaking the rules. And I pull them aside and I warn them, look, you're, gonna, you're going to roll right here. Uh, you're a Miles, and so you're gonna act like one. And if not, I'm taking you home, which was like shorthand code. They'd already figured it out. They're little dudes, but they know what that means. We're going home to get lit up, okay? <laughs> There's going to be some serious instruction taking place. And, uh, um, yeah, so, warn them once, warn them twice. Look over, there's one of the kids, trunks down, just arcing right into the pool. This didn't happen, but let's just say it did. Unk, trunks down, arcing right into the pool. What am I going to do? I'm going to grab him by the ear, and I'm going to march him right out of there, and I'm going to take him home and deal with him there. Uh, that's called parenting, right? You don't let your kids, you don't, you don't let them go animal farm. You don't let them go Lord of the Flies. You know, we, parents don't do that, okay? You have the right to take them home and instruct them. Well, God reserves the same right. And if a brother gets the bit in his teeth and he ends up working now to divide what Christ bled to unite, that's a very dangerous position to be in. This can be having compassion, making a difference in the life of someone that is an error. It can, it can ultimately, it can get that bad that you intervening, it's, it's life-saving. James chapter five, verse 19 says, brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. And we're not talking about hell, we're talking about physical death here and hide a multitude of sins. First John five, verse 16, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death, he shall ask, and, it, and, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that he shall pray for it. 
all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. And we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and the wicked one toucheth him not. And you say, okay, pastor, I see that. Last week you just spent a lot of time talking about the tribulation, the dual application of the general epistles. Um, you know, how does this apply in the church age? Okay, I already told you, in every dispensation, God reserves the right to take his kids home. Let me give you a little homework. Check out 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and see if you can figure out why some Christians are sleeping. Why are some Christians sleeping? There's your homework. Um, I think you will find he is taking them home to deal with them there. I don't think we many times take this seriously enough. I know personally of, a, of, a, of an example, I know of a gentleman that, that got warped in his doctrine, he got warped in his teaching, and he was, his teaching and his preaching was meant, he intended it, to divide the people for whom Christ bled to unite. Uh, he was in another country and he was coming to Kansas City in his own words, to bring a sword to divide the church, the believing from the unbelieving. In other words, you're believing if you believe the way he's parsing scripture, the way he's parsing doctrine, and if you don't submit to what he's teaching, you're not submitted to the truth of God's word. He's just defining it. And if you won't submit to the truth of God's word, well then, we can have no fellowship with you. He came to bring a sword, and he wanted to move to the Kansas City area to divide the church there. And uh, right before he was to come to Kansas City, there's no explanation for it. Uh, the gentleman's wife is a nurse. She didn't have an explanation for it. He started dying. <laughs> uh, they took him to the hospital. He was saying goodbye to his family and it came back to the churches in Kansas City that he was coming with the intention to split and we got desperate in prayer for him. And the doctors don't know what, I mean, he was literally on his deathbed in the hospital, and then all of a sudden he started recovering. Well, I know why he started recovering. All the churches in Kansas City started praying God for mercy on this individual. I mean, had we known what was in his heart, maybe we wouldn't have been so fervent in our prayers. <laughs> I hope we would have. I hope we're not that petty, but, but there it is. I mean, there it is. And he came, I sat down with him personally, and he told me, uh, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ came to bring a sword. He didn't come to unify people. That was over who he is, not over your crazy doctrine, bro. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, the dude almost died right before he was set to divide, to cause division, to cause splits in churches. This is dangerous stuff. Make sure that your teaching matches what the Bible says. That's safe territory. Make sure that your teaching is edifying. It's building up the church, right? It's building up the bride of Christ. It's building up a local body of believers in the faith. It's not working to bust them up into factions and camps and sects and cults. God help us. Also consider that verses 22 and 23 are command to, to see souls saved, to rescue souls. You know, God's got compassion on the lost. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. As a matter of fact, his, his word explicitly says that. God is not willing that any should perish. God 
has compassion on the lost and those who are on the path to destruction. They're trapped in sin. And the proclamation over that has always been there. The wages of sin is death. And the promises that death and hell are cast into an eternal lake of fire. And God is so desperate that no one would spend eternity in hell. He fell all over himself to keep you out. Christ came. God the Father sends God the Son to be our sin bearer, to take our sin to the cross of Calvary and to suffer the Father's wrath in our place. You cannot say that God does not desire to deliver the lost from their sin. This is the heart of God. This is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter nine, verse 36, but when he, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted. They're perishing. They were scattered abroad, a sheep having no shepherd. And so this is why Jesus came to do what he did. He died for our sins. He was buried in the grave. He rose again on the third day. And he gave his followers, he gave the disciples, he gave the church a mission. It's a co-mission with him. Matthew 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I want you to go and preach the gospel. Those that respond, you will baptize them and then you will disciple them. You're gonna train them up to do the same thing. That is the mission. We see it consistently over and over and over again. We, as a matter of fact, this, is, this, is, uh, this verse has found a permanent place uh, inside our, our sanctuary here. Uh, Paul basically restates the Great Commission to Timothy. Hey, he's obedient. Paul was obedient to the Great Commission and so now here he is passing it on to Tim. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same, those things. Not your own thing, right? That you, you too are gonna contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. Those things commit, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. This is a command, this is the mission. Brothers and sisters, there's no praying about it. Let's just get to the doing of it. People say, oh, I don't feel like I'm called to that. Read your Bible and you'll see, you're called. There are no exceptions. If you're a child of God, you are an ambassador for Christ. You are an emissary from heaven itself to reach, right? Have some, have some compassion. See souls saved, see disciples made. Well, I don't, I, don't feel like, I don't feel like evangelism is in my wheelhouse. That's okay, just do what you're told. Do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't have to be in your wheelhouse. You know, if I told, as a child growing up, if I told my dad, my dad said, okay, I want you to get out there and weed the garden. You know what, dad, I don't really feel like it. I don't, I don't feel, I don't really feel called to that. I feel like my calling is to go down to the swimming pool and work on my tan, okay? Okay. A, that would never happen. If my dad said it, that was the word, and that was the final word, and that was all there was to it. But 
Okay, I want you to weed the, Dad, I just don't feel called to that. Um, he would have made sure that I felt called. <laughs> he would have made sure that the feeling on my backside would produce obedience. So here's the key. What produces in us the same heart for the loss that God has? What does he say right here? Of some have compassion, making a difference. Others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by, what, what builds in us a heart for that? Look at the previous verse. What did verse 21 say? Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Man, that's the love that constraineth us, 2 Corinthians 5.14, it's the love of Christ. The love of Christ constraineth us and it moves us in the work. I wanna give you a great example of what we're seeing here, of God's love for the condemned. Uh, Look in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 16. In Genesis chapter 18, God comes, Jesus comes with two of his angels. And he's meeting with Abraham before he goes, before he sends these angels to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. And we actually looked at all of this whenever we saw the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah here in the book of Jude. So the men are now getting ready, the angels is what we see they are here in in, in 18 uh, verse 16. They're getting ready to be deployed to Sodom and um, look at God's heart. The men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? He's gonna make of Abraham this great nation, a peculiar people uh, to himself, and you know, he's, he's gonna train up his kids. Do I share this with Abraham? Look down in verse 20. He does. The Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. See, not all of the angels left their first estate. And Jude talks about this in his letter. You know, these angels that didn't keep their proper habitation, they didn't keep their proper place, they left their first estate and they went after, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, they went after strange flesh. And the results were Genesis chapter six. All flesh ends up being corrupted before the Lord. It's so bad, God literally hits the reset button on the human genome. Okay, that that was a, a, a satanic, angelic rebellion that was taking place in Genesis chapter six. Well, not all of the angels left their first estate. Most of the angels stayed in the will of God. Check out Revelation chapter 12 and verse four sometime. When Satan leads the celestial host in rebellion, Only a third, about a third, go with him. The other two thirds, well, they kept with Christ. The third that rebel joins Sodom and Gomorrah in receiving God's judgment. And so here, in Genesis 18, we've got two angels who are modeling for you and I our call, right? In this story, we have one of the greatest examples of judgment of apostates, but also, Souls that are perishing, there need to be saved. 
Two angels are modeling that for us here in Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Two angels model our call in this story of this example of the judgment of apostates. Look up at verse six in in Jude. The angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. He, God, hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day, just like, verse seven, their judgment is just like Sodom and Gomorrah, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So those angels are there to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They're there to execute the judgment of God, but they're also there to do something that's very critical. Uh, This is where their mission overlaps with ours. They're there to rescue Lot and his family. Does everybody see that? They're on a rescue mission as well. Okay, so that brings us to our compulsion. Look at verse 23, Jude 23. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. So here we have someone in verse 23 that's gonna burn. They're They're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And here's Lot, he's living in a place that's gonna burn. It's a place that's gonna receive judgment. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. So let me just, moms, dads, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, You're outside, you're working in the garden, your kids are inside watching TV, you look back and you see your house is on fire. What are you gonna do? Oh my goodness, we need a parenting class. (laughs) What are you gonna do? You're gonna drop everything and what? You're gonna run into that burning home and you're gonna drag your kids out. Your Your heart will stop for a second It's weird, you get that adrenaline rush, you get the the prickles all over your skin. I mean, it's like it puts you into turbo mode immediately. You're You're gonna fly into that house and grab your kids and get them out of there. You see your kids in a situation, you see your child in a situation, somebody's backing their car up and they don't see the child. What are you doing? You're running, you're flat out. What's the motivation there? Full on fear. You've got people in your life that except God uses someone to, I mean, except God uses someone to open their eyes, to show them the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and to show the sufficiency of the finished work of Christ at Calvary, his death, his burial, his resurrection, except somebody shows them God's solution for their sin problem, that person that you know and you say that you love, they're gonna burn in, 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 in a lake of fire for eternity. And we're so hard-hearted, we're like, yeah, it's bad. Mm. God help us to have compassion on the lost, to have fear over their condition. So here's a whole nother message. Go back to Genesis 18, 23. Abraham drew near and said, Lord, right? He said, wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham prayed and as a result, Lot was saved. Check out 1 Timothy chapter two. 1 Timothy chapter two shows me that nobody gets saved but what somebody prays for their salvation. 1 Timothy two says we're to make all kinds of prayers for all kinds of men, why? All kinds of men, why? Because God wants them saved, he's not willing that they perish. 
So Lot prayed, or Abraham prays for Lot, and as a result, Lot was literally pulled out of the fire, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Save them with fear. Let fear be your motivation, because they're dead, except you move. You know, God can help us get broken and properly panicked over the lost and their sure damnation outside of Christ. God shows Abraham Lot's sure destruction. Abraham in fear and trembling, he calls on the Lord for mercy. He's looking for mercy unto, unto life, right? That's what he's doing. So God told Abraham saw, he prayed, and Lot was rescued. Fanny Crosby, famous hymn, she wrote, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Weep for the erring one, lift up the fallen one. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Adrian Rogers tells a story, and it's so good. He said, years ago, I heard the story of a soul winner. This man was an unlettered man, an uneducated man. He had normal, not super normal, mental abilities, but he had a heart full of the love of God for Jesus Christ. There was in his town a very literate, educated, somewhat cynical man who was not a Christian. The soul winner felt a great burden to go see that man and to talk to him about Jesus Christ, and so he did. He called on him one evening, and the man who was very brilliant and very logical and very argumentative made sport of the soul winner. The soul winner had some illustrations and some arguments that he thought were quite good, but when this man, with his brilliance and rapier-like wit, was finished with the soul winner, he had, humili- he had humiliated the soul winner. He had showed him his lack of logic in some of his presentation. He had shown him where he'd even contradicted himself in some of the things that he presented. And finally, the soul winner realized that he was, way over, he was in way over his head. Seemingly, he had bungled it. He felt he was the wrong man, as it were, for the job. And he was humiliated. He felt, he felt that he had disgraced Jesus and the cause of Christ and that this man now would most likely never be saved. And so the soul winner with a broken heart just began to weep a little and he told the man, I'm sorry, I should have never come here. I don't have what it takes to talk with a man like you. He said, I'm sorry, I just loved you and I wanted to see you saved. That's all, I'm sorry. And the soul winner left feeling like he'd so failed and disgraced his Lord and so he came home and he told his wife, And he said, wife, I don't want any supper tonight. I'm going to my bedroom to pray. I'd like to be left alone. And so in humiliation he went, feeling that not only was the man lost, but he had failed the Lord and bungled the job. And he's sobbing out his confession to God and asked God to forgive him for being so ill-prepared and not knowing how to answer this brilliant man. Then a knock comes at the door. The man of letters, the literary man, was knocking on the door and he asked to see the soul winner and the wife said, I don't think John wants to see anybody. And the man says, I believe he wants to see me. And so John came out and the man said to John, sir, would you tell me how to be saved? Would you just tell me how to be a Christian? And the soul winner said, have you come to make sport of me? Are you just jesting? And he said, no, I'm serious, I need to be saved. I want to be saved. And the soul winner said, I don't understand it. When I was at your house, every argument I gave you destroyed? And he said, no, that's not true. There was one argument that you had that I could not answer. And he said, what was that? And the man said, 
You laid a trembling hand on my shoulder and said with tears in your eye, you said you loved me and wanted to see me saved. And when you left, I couldn't answer that. What would make a man like you leave his home on a night like this, go across the city and humiliate yourself that you might share something that was real to you, so real to you? And as I thought about that and I thought about the meaning and the purpose and the sincerity in your life, I looked at my own life and saw emptiness. And I saw that genuine love and that is an argument I cannot answer. I need to be saved. The love of Christ constraineth us. It's being in the love of God. That's what compels us. That's what motivates us. That's what gives us God's heart for the lost. And so others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And when you've got God's heart, that will motivate you. You will now be fearful for the lost. Can I just tell you, that's something I wrestle with constantly. The way lost people behave, <laughs> sometimes I feel like, oh, it's on my last nerve, you know? They don't have a shepherd. They're blind. They don't know. They don't know love. They don't know the love of God. You've got it. Man, I want to follow this soul winner's example and make sure that the lost know that God desperately loves them. And the proof of that is because they can see that I love them. Others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Watch what comes next. Hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Okay, garments are what you wear. And as believers, you can check this out, Revelation 19.8. We are to be dressed in, in Revelation 19, it's the righteousness of the saints. Uh, Revelation 19.8 says the white linen is the righteousness of the saints. As you compare scripture with scripture, you find out that the righteousness of the saints that it's Christ himself, that Christ is our righteousness. Um, and so we're to be wearing the righteousness of Christ, we're to be dressed in that, and we're to be dressed for his mission. Sometime do a study in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter six, and you find out that you put on the, the word of God as armor in the spiritual battle that God's called you to engage in. So we're to be dressed properly. Garments are what you wear. Okay, so how does Christ's righteousness, how does, how does God's word, when you're wearing God's word, how does that look when your flesh is showing through? I mean, how does that look? Okay, I'm not gonna get into a whole thing on how you should dress. Okay, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, you ought to, I'll just, I'll just sum it up this way. Okay, let's just talk about physical dress. Um, you know, if you want to wear a suit to service, wear a suit. That'd be great. That'll show other people that want to wear a suit they can actually wear a suit to service. Nobody should feel bad about wearing a suit to service. Uh, it happens very rarely. Um, I think Arnold Thomas is the guy that most, mostly wears a suit to service. And uh, I, always, uh, I always feel underdressed a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm around Arnold. But uh, yeah, go ahead and wear one so other people know that it's okay to wear a suit, okay? Um, don't come to church naked. We'll send you home. 
because there is no way that that will not be a distraction. We're actually here to learn the word of God and if all your parts are hanging out to the extent that, like, that's distraction and that, that, that's just beyond the pale. We're gonna send you home. Okay, so, so how much is too little? You ought to dress just like you know the Lord is watching, because he is. And can I just tell the ladies, how you get a man is how you have to keep him. And I got news for you, after the babies come, I mean, there's just nothing more sad than some 50, you know, 60, uh, aged woman with, with juicy tattooed on her cheek. I mean, like, that, no, not anymore. And so you're, you know, you got all that hanging out, like, what, no, that's how you, okay. Check out what Peter says on the subject. What do you want to really wear? How do you want to dress to impress? You, wanna, you, want, you want to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, okay? That's, that's what you want to wear. You, whatever you get a man with, that's what you're going to keep him with. And if you get a man with, you know, if you get a man by being bootylicious, then, then, then that's the kind of man you got. And that's what you're going to be dealing with. Okay, okay, flip side, men. I mean, I don't know, most of our guys dress like slobs, so it's probably not a problem, but. <laughs> but you know, if, if, if you're hot, have mercy. <laughs> and, uh, and, and keep it all covered. Okay, so anyway. Yeah, maybe we do need a message on that. Maybe we need a series on that, I don't know. Let's pray about that. You always dress for who you want to impress. That's how, you, that's how you dress. Okay, so how does Christ, I mean, if we want to impress the Lord, how does his mission, how does his person look when we're lusting for our life in the world? We're living for a life in the lost world. How does the righteousness of Christ look when you're wearing it in those pursuits, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, denying the Lord, even our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus told us to remember Lot's wife. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 30. Still on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. When Christ comes in his second coming, it'll be just like this. In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. And you know the story in Genesis the angels have to literally compel Lot, his two daughters and his wife, to flee the city. And they said, do not look back, lest you be consumed in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they're running for their lives, and Lot's wife can't help. She's got a longing, she's got a life in Sodom and Gomorrah. She can't help looking back. Garments are what you're clothed in. So what are you clothed in? Here's a woman that ends up wearing Sodom's judgment for her own sin. Are you wearing Christ's righteousness or your own? You know, your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, six says, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we do all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. What does your life show? Can I just tell you, I stand before you today with no intrinsic righteousness in and of myself. I am not, Sam Miles is not righteous, I'm not. 
I'm a sinner saved by grace. Thank God for that. (laughs) But oh man, I have the righteousness of God himself over my life through Jesus Christ my Lord. When God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ over my life. I need to live that, I need to wear that. What's true of me, theologically, what's true of me, spiritually, ought to be manifest in and through my life. What are you wearing? What does the world see? Do they see Jesus? Or do they just see your flesh showing through? For us to live is Christ. Lot's wife didn't hate the lifestyle that was spotted by the flesh. She longed for it. She didn't hate the garment spotted by the flesh. No, she loved it. And so she ends up wearing Sodom's judgment for her own sin. Remember verse 12, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. So there again, we have false teachers facing certain judgment. Why, why would you want to live like that? Do you know why most lost people don't care what Christians say about the judgment of God over their sin? You know why most lost people don't care to hear about his solution for salvation? It's because most of God's people are living just like the lost world around them. And when they look at their life, they can't see the love of God. They just see another chump trying to make their way through this world. That's what they see. They don't see a difference. They don't see the reality, the person, the love, the life of Christ. Most lost people aren't interested in hearing it because they know that most Christians don't actually love them. Most believers, tactically, practically, oh yeah, I know you're not selling drugs. I know you're not running a prostitution ring, but you're just going through the motions. You're just living in the world like so many other lost people live. There's no tactical, practical difference between the living of most Christians and most lost people. And so the lost world sees it. They know Christ doesn't make a difference in the life of a person. There's nothing peculiar. Oh, that the lost would see an MBT, a holy people. I pray that Kansas City would see at Midtown Baptist a people who are on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, who are full of the love of God, they're full of the life of God, they're full of the light of God. I pray that we'd be a people that cry out for God's mercy for salvation over the lost, so that when we approach them that they would see God's people, a holy people. They would see a people of God's, uh, God's power, God's love, God's care, God's affection, holy unto the Lord. A life in Christ should be plainly seen. And it should be proof of who and what we really are. The lost world is hungry for something real. And you call yourself a Christian, but you live just like them. Why would they listen to you? We have the love of God. Let's not, I mean, we live in this world. I mean, brothers and sisters, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. Nowhere are you gonna move and it not be Sodom and Gomorrah. Our righteous souls are vexed living in this place. So what is the answer for us? What's the solution for us? Let's not let, living in this world, let's not allow that to hinder our testimony and ability to see souls saved. We are not of this world. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are agents from another realm. Let's steal some lost people for Jesus. Let's be God's men. Let's be God's women on his mission. 
Are you saved this morning? Are you born again? Do you know that Christ died for your sin and he rose to give you eternal life? Do you know that? Do you know that you have it? If so, are you living it out? Are you working to rescue the perishing? I'd like us to bow our heads and I'd like us to humble ourselves before the Lord together this morning. How many would say today, Pastor, please, would you pray for me? I don't know that I am saved. I don't know that I'm born again. Please pray for me. I need to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you pray for me? Can I see your hand? Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? Yes, yes, sir. Yes, yes. Anybody else? I'm not sure that I'm saved. I don't know that I'm born again. I don't know that God's my Father. Yes, sir. Anybody else? Okay, we're seeing several, and we're gonna pray this morning, but I, I wanna make sure I catch, at least have it in my mind's eye, who I'm praying for. Anybody else, please pray for me. I don't know Christ as Lord and Savior. I need to be saved. Okay, I'm gonna pray for you in just a second. How many believers would say, Pastor, please pray for me? I'm just going through the motions of life. I'm not living a life that's on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not living a life that's showing the love of God. Please, would you pray for me? I need to, I need to rededicate my life this morning. Please pray for me. Is there anybody like that? Okay. Okay, we've got a few. We've got a number. Yeah. God, I'm begging you in the name of Christ that you'd have mercy on these seven that are saying that they need to be born again. They need Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for those that, that just didn't even have the strength to raise their hand and ask for prayer. There's probably more that need to be saved. They need to be born again. They need to confess their sin. They need to call on Christ as Lord and Savior. They need Christ in their life. And so God, please, let today, according to your word, let today be the day of salvation. Help them to ignore what the enemy is saying that you've got tomorrow. You've got other things to do. You can do this later. Lord, let them, let them be done with that logic and that lie. When you're calling, we have to come. When you're calling, we have to submit. And so Lord, I pray for the souls of these that want to know Jesus. Lord, let today be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters who, Lord, we all wrestle with this from time to time. We'll be in situations where we're just going through the motions and we're living like everybody else around us. And maybe we're not in gross sin, but we're not burdened for the loss like Jesus is, like you are. So oh God, help us to see. We've just, we've just got a moment in time to make a difference. God, help us to have godly fear over lost souls perishing in everlasting judgment and destruction. God, help us to be desperate for them to know Jesus. Lord, would you give us open doors? Would you give us opportunities? But above all, God, would you give us, would, would the love of Christ constrain us, Midtown Baptists? Would we be constrained by your love? Lord, would you work in our hearts to be full of the love of God that when the lost see us, they see that we love them desperately, that we care for them, that we exist as proof of your love for them. 
I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.